If you could turn to Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse number 56 or 57. Uh, Luke chapter number 1. Good to see everybody this morning. Hopefully you had a good Christmas yesterday, enjoying being with family and celebrating the birth of our Savior. Luke chapter number 1. Mike, that was, uh, that was creative, that song, so that was, that was neat. So, You know, we're, we're going through Luke 1 and 2, which are the, the birth narratives, the, the accounts of everything surrounding the, the birth of Jesus Christ. And we've already noted that, that Luke has framed an argument that we're seeing in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it's a lesser to greater argument. Um, he, he moves... Uh, back and forth. He's switching back and forth from lesser to greater, and now he's back to lesser, and lesser is going to be John the Baptist. And by all accounts, uh, the birth of John the Baptist is, is notable at the very least, but actually it's, it's spectacular when you consider everything that surrounds the birth of John the Baptist, including the fact that his mom was past childbearing age and, and all these different things. But we will see next week that John is the lesser. John's the forerunner, and his birth is nowhere as magnificent as Jesus Christ, right? And you're going to see that very clearly from the, the Luke narrative. So as we think about that, let's stand. We're going to read just the first section right now, the first section of our text today, and we'll read the rest of them as we get into the message Verse number 57 says, now the time came for, uh, yeah, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs unto his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Lord, uh, we've already prayed once this morning, and I uh, pray once again that you will take our hearts, remove all the distractions from our hearts, uh, whatever is going on, and help us to be able to think clearly about the Word of God, and that we'll be blessed by this uh, story of the birth and the song of, of Zechariah. And Lord, I pray that when we're done here today, that we'll be praising you and our hearts will be lifted in joy. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. So the account today is, is structured in three major sections. Uh, we just read the first section, which is the birth and naming of the baby. Then we go into Zechariah's song, and in the first section of that, he blesses God, and then finally he blesses his son. But um, we, we have this birth of John the Baptist, and... Mary had, had remained with Elizabeth for three months before returning home. We see that in the verse previous. Mary went to visit Elizabeth. She stayed there three months, and then after three months, uh, she went back home. Elizabeth bore a son in her old, old age. Now, apparently, 
uh, Elizabeth remained in seclusion during the time of her pregnancy because when the neighbors heard, they rejoiced with her. That's what the narrative says, and it just leads us to believe that she had kind of kept herself away from people the whole time that she was pregnant, although we can't say that with certainty. In a small village, though, like Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was a very small village, any birth is a public event, and especially under these circumstances, the people praise God for his mercy to Elizabeth in giving her a, a son. If you've ever lived in a small town, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And the fact that Elizabeth was, was giving birth was just an amazing thing. In the Bible, it was very clear that everybody knew about it. And the, the angel's promise had, had come true, right? Remember the promise of the angel? The angel said in verse number 14, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And they're already starting. He's just an infinite infant, and they're already starting to rejoice at his birth. Now... According to the covenant made with Abraham, we're going to go back into our Old Testament for just a minute. According to the covenant made with Abraham, every male baby was to be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant with Abraham. Let's, I'm going to, we'll read this together. Just look back behind me. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. And so circumcision was a sign of the covenant made with Abraham. And, and it's, it's pointing to Abraham's covenant that God made with him. And that one day there would be an offspring. And Paul said that that offspring is singular not plural offspring, right? There's one offspring who's going to be born. But regardless, this is a baby's big day. Everyone in the village showed up at the family's house to welcome this child into the fellowship of God's people on this circumcision event. It was on the day of circumcision that the child's name was given. They weren't given a name at birth. They were given the name at their circumcision. Naturally, According to custom of the time, this, the firstborn male child was normally named after his father. Sometimes a family name was used, but no, a lot of times it was the father. Everyone just assumed, for whatever reason their family circumstances were, that his name would be Zechariah. But notice in verse number 60, what did Elizabeth say? She said, no, he will be called John. And Elizabeth was emphatic. The baby's name was John, not Zechariah. Now, whether that's by direct revelation or by written communication with her husband, Elizabeth knew from the, um, that um, this was the name that the angel had given to Zechariah. And immediately, her family and friends started protesting. Look at what they said. They said, none of your relatives have been called by their name, by this name. It just didn't make any sense to them. They're like, why on earth, Elizabeth? And so they did what all good friends do. They pitted the husband against the wife. And so they go to the husband, Zechariah, and, and, and they said the same thing. Now, up to this point, Zechariah had been watching in silence. Not only silence of mouth, 
silence of hearing. Since he balked at God's promise at his encounter with the angel, he had been left unable to speak. And apparently he was also unable to hear. Verse number 62 says, And they made signs to his uh, father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And so he was also uh, deaf at that time. God made him deaf, so he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. Now, you might be asking, if you're like me, they had writing tablets. You ever wondered about that when you read about the writing tablets? What are these writing tablets? This does not add anything to the truth of the sermon, but it's something to help you understand the Bible. I'm going to give you what the writing tablets are. Here's one of them. This is an archaeological writing tablet. This one is from... Of England, and in, in an area in, that they were building, they found 400 and over 400 of these uh, writing tablets, okay? Now, how did they use these writing tablets? Notice the border around them. What they did, the whole tablet was filled with wax, and then they would, just like this, this is a modern picture of a, of a reconstruction, and they would take a stylus, and they would write messages in the wax. Then, when they needed to erase it, all they had to do was press over it. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And we think we're so sophisticated because we have pencils and erasers, right? Uh, we had nothing on them. They were very ingenious. So I thought that might be interesting for you to know. But Elizabeth was emphatic about that. And, and, um, um, and so Zechariah had been deaf and dumb for nearly a year. And his disabilities kept him out of the conversation, as all disabilities do. Presumably, he didn't even know what Elizabeth had said. He probably didn't even know what they were saying to Elizabeth, actually. Um, but Zechariah was just as stubborn as, a, as about the child's name as Elizabeth. And both parents were willing to go against the wishes of the family, against social convention, and, and do the will of God. Now, in, in the original language, when you read that, that sentence, the first word that Zechariah scribbled down was John. It, so that put it in an emphatic position. So rather than writing something tentatively like, oh yeah, we're thinking about calling him John. Or, you know, uh, you know I, we've been going back and forth, but we're going to call him John. Or we just feel like the best thing to do is call him John. He, he wrote emphatically, John is his name. John is his name. And at that very moment, at that very moment, Zechariah wrote the John's name down. He found his voice. Nine months he has been without a voice and without hearing. And the Bible says, look at what it says, and they all wondered and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. For nine months, this man had been alone in his thoughts, pondering the angel's message. He had come to believe that his son would prepare the way for the Savior. And so by naming the boy John in obedience to God, Zechariah was proving his faith in God's promise. He understood. He, I, I would guess that John or uh, Zechariah was recalling all the scripture that he knew and, and all the teaching that he, he had. And God was just doing a, a work in his heart. And the, the words on the tablet show that this is fact, that he took Zechariah and he, he brought this old man to faith. 
At first, Zechariah doubted, but God disciplined him in the exact right way that made him trust. And this is something God does for us often, doesn't he? he it's always a mercy when he does it. He takes the hard experiences of our life, the hard experiences of suffering, and he uses those to teach us to trust him. And we don't like suffering. Nobody likes suffering, do we? But we'll never learn to trust God unless we have these difficulties that he brings our way. And they're used to teach us, used to help us to get to know more about him. Well, notice verse number 65. What was the reaction of the people? The reaction is, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Now, the, this awe or this fear that is mentioned, it, that's the proper reaction to somebody, a human, who witnesses a divine act, a divine act, uh, an act of divine power. The, this fear, and I, I want to explain something because there's a misunderstanding. People, people argue about what fear is. Now, is this a reverent fear or is this a scared fear? I, I think that the best way to describe it would be this way. When, when humanity comes in contact with divinity, there is a, a fear that comes, that, oh no, we're going to die. Isn't that right? That happens. But over time, when they see that this, this transcendent deity, this divine being named the Lord, Yahweh, the Jesus Christ, that they are a gracious God, and if you, if you follow them by faith, you repent of your sins, there is grace there, and so that fear turns to awe and wonder. And so it starts as fear and goes to awe and wonder. And so we do fear God, and we should fear God, but we do it with an, a mix with awe and wonder. It's, it's all in one. And so everybody who comes in, uh, contact with the transcendent holiness of God uh, causes all humanity, whether redeemed or unredeemed, to cower in fear. God's majesty is beyond anything that humanity has ever seen. It's most magnificent. When humans experience the divine glory, they are always struck with fear. In chapter number 2, we're going to see shepherds in the fields, right? Abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly, what? The angel of the Lord came about them, and the angels have been with God, and they're doing the exact thing that Moses did on Mount Sinai. They are reflecting the glory of God. And so you have angels who are not even divine beings reflecting the glory of God in all its greatness, and the reaction of humanity is fear. We're not as sophisticated and tough and strong and independent as we think ourselves to be, are we? God is magnificent, and this causes us then to stand in awe of who is this being with all this glory. And we're, we're struck and we're led to glorify Him. But this can only happen if you know Christ is your Savior. 
If you do not know Christ as your Savior and you see the divine glory, fear is the only reaction. And it's the only appropriate reaction, to be honest with you, right? But when we have trusted Christ, then there is glory that's brought to him. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you live each day in awe and reverence of the transcendent Lord? I loved what uh, Juanita said today about the, the, the pleasures of the world, that they capture our eyes and sometimes they capture our hearts. And if you're a believer, it's only temporarily. They are not, if you saw the glory of God one time for five seconds, you would do nothing but desire to see that glory again every chance you got and everything else in the world would just kind of fade away. That's how magnificent God is. Well, Zechariah then, he goes into a song and he blesses the Lord. This guy has not been able to speak for at least nine months, which is a long time to remain silent. And so it's not surprising that when he finally broke his silence, he had something really important to say. If you hadn't been able to talk for nine months, I am sure you're going to sit down and think, what are the first words I'm going to say if I ever get to talk again? And the first words out of his mouth were what? Praise the Lord. This showed the true condition of Zechariah's heart. His suffering had done him spiritual good. And before he did anything else, he wanted to give praise to the Lord. And what came out next was an exuberant eruption of praise. All of the joy that had been pent up inside the priest during the nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy now came pouring out his mouth in exultation. And Luke tells us that as soon as he had named his boy, Zechariah's mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke a blessing God. And once he believed, he had to worship. Because whenever we know what God has done for our salvation, we are compelled to praise him, aren't we? And that's what makes Christmas so joyful for us. It's not the season. It's not Santa Claus. It's not presents. And it's not the fire. And it's not the snow of fake snow down here on the trees and everything else. It's Jesus Christ in him glorified. He deserves the glory. And that person who was born died to save me. Praise the Lord. And so we glorify him that way. Genuine faith always expresses itself in joyous praise. And this is important because there, where there is no... Listen to this. This is important. Uh, listen up. I got to do that, right, Christy? Thanks, Christy. Um, this is important because where there is no real worship, people have a right to wonder if there's any faith at all. If you are around someone who claims to know Jesus Christ, but there's no wonder and joy and worship of God, you have to, you have every right to say, I wonder if this person even knows the same God I do, right? This is critically important. Zechariah's hymn of Thanksgiving, Mike already pointed out, is called Benedictus. It means blessing. That's, that's the first word in the, in the Latin translation of, of the, uh, the, the song. And the priest blessed the Lord for blessing him. Now, it could have been composed during Zechariah's long months of silence. It was a song in his heart. It was also the word of God. For the Bible says, look at, the, look at the, verse number 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So this is a word from God. And Zechariah's benediction comes in two parts. 
And we're going to look at him. The first few verses to verse, uh, verse number 75, he's blessing God. Then from 76 to 79, he's blessing his son. And so he blesses God. Let's look at how he blesses God. Verse number uh, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us all in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant uh, us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This blessing tells us about, all about salvation. Now, try your best to take your mind all the way back 2,000 years ago to the birth of John the Baptist. Zechariah apparently understood the staggering implications of what the angel had promised. Think, there had been 400 silent years since Malachi wrote the word of God. No prophet had arisen in 400 years. It had been another 1,500 years before that since the promise was made to Abraham about salvation through his offspring. Can you imagine what's going on? Think about this. What's going on in the mind of Zechariah when the promise of 2,000 years in the making has finally arrived? It had, it had to be staggering to this man. It had to give him cold chills. And no wonder he was praising God so much. If, and he knew, if my son is the forerunner, then salvation's on its way. Literally at stake is in the birth of these two babies was nothing less than the salvation of the whole world. Can you imagine what, being Zechariah and thinking all that through? Staggering promises. According to Zechariah, God was raising the horn of salvation. Now, this is an Old Testament term. It's used uh, several times in the Old Testament. And horn of salvation is meant to capture the strength of an animal. Twice, King David calls uh, the, uh, uh, God, the Lord, the horn of my salvation. The horns are, for lack of a better term, they're the business end of an animal, right? And, and in a similar way, the Messiah is the business end of God's saving plan for the world. With the coming of Christ, he was tossing the mighty horn of his salvation. Now, what is salvation? Have you ever asked specifically what is salvation? According to Zechariah, salvation is something that comes from God and not from us. We can't produce our salvation. He said in verse number 68, God has, look at this phrase, God has visited and redeemed his people. And that's important. Those, those are connected. That's the purpose of the visitation. God, is, God visiting his people is an important idea all through Scripture. You, you go from Exodus all the way to the end of the Bible, and you will find times when God visited his people. And there are two types of visits that God would make. 
The first kind of visit was a visit of judgment to punish people. And this is found in Jeremiah 44, 13, and all through uh, the Old Testament. I picked this one. I will punish, and that, that Hebrew word there is, is the word visit. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished, and there's that word visit again, as I have visited Jerusalem with a sword and with the famine and with pestilence. And that's one way that God visits. You don't want God to visit you that way. You, you go to the book of Revelation, you see in the messages to the church, he's warning them, you do not want me to visit you in the state that you're in, right? But the most common visit is a, a visit whereby God brings grace to people. And we see this um, all the way back in Exodus chapter number 4, verse number 31, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had what? He had visited the people and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. This is when, when Moses gave the, 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 the plan of salvation to the elders of Israel and they, they were seeing that God was going to visit them. Another time is in the book of Ruth, chapter number one, when she, talking about Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so, by sending an angel, salvation uh, comes in fulfillment of his promise. Zechariah, um, um, I'm sorry, I, I just got messed up. Let me start over. Um, in his, by putting a son in the virgin's womb, God was visiting his people. Our, he was entering our situation from the outside because without this intervention, we could never be saved. And so salvation is not a human invention. It is a divine visitation. It's divine visitation. It's not something that we achieve by going to God but something God has done by coming to us in Jesus Christ. In salvation, from Old Testament to New Testament, it always begins with God coming to his people. We cannot know God unless he allows himself to be known, unless he decrees it to be known. And so God's gracious salvation is a fulfillment of his promise. Zechariah mentions covenant promises in this song. For example, he mentions uh, the covenant uh, uh, song of David, where in Psalm 132 he says, David says, there I will make a horn uh, to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. In Psalm 132, 17. In um, this offspring would rule an eternal throne. Zechariah is also recalling David's words in Psalm 18, or verses 2 and 3. Hold on just a moment. The... <clears throat> The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield. Now look, that's all defensive. And then he switches, and he says, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Zechariah goes even further back to the covenant with Abraham. 
In verse number 72, look at what he said. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Well, what does he mean by that? The mercy shown to our fathers. Well, he's going all the way back uh, to next verse, to Abraham. He says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What is this oath? What is this oath? Turn with me to Genesis in chapter 17. You'll see the oath that he promised to Abraham. This is the one that he's referring to. There's several times the Lord came to Abraham. And he says this. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you. This is verse number 4 of Genesis 17. My covenant is with you, that you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to God, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so there's the covenant right there. And he's praising God because now he's fulfilling, he set in motion the fulfillment of that covenant. And the last thing that Zechariah did in the first part of his song, was explain God's purpose. Turn back to verses 74 and 75 of Luke 1. He says, We, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. To serve God is to glorify him in our worship. And in everything else we do, we lead holy lives, and this is the goal of our salvation. He says, to, um, um, uh, he says what? He says to save you from your enemies, to serve them without fear. And what are the two words next? In holiness and righteousness. You see, God wants to do something more with us and simply get us to heaven. His goal is for us to live for his glory. You know, we are saved from hell. If you are saved, you are saved from hell. But he also saved you from sin he saved you from sin god's salvation is for our sanctification and this always leads to service now why do i why am i emphasizing that you know i say pastor i understand that well there's a growing teaching in churches that emphasizes grace it emphasizes grace and it, it, it there's a it's a variation of something like this well i am saved by grace God's grace covers it, and so since grace is the mindset, any time that you start telling people to live a certain way and the commands of, of Scripture, you are teaching law. And they're, they're building a false dichotomy between grace and the law and pitting them against each other. And that's exactly what Paul wrote against in Romans 6.1, Right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what does he say? May it never be. I think in the King James it says anathema, right? Right? And so um, these verses, along with many others, make it clear that we are saved to holiness and righteousness. And this is Zechariah's song. It's a song of salvation. And now everything that he promised is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the salvation that comes from God. And God had to intervene. If God didn't intervene, we would have no salvation. Unless he sent his son to be our savior, we could never be saved. We needed someone. This is so important. We needed someone to live a perfect life and die an atoning uh, death in our place. This was the promised salvation. And it was a mighty deliverance, as salvation always is. And this is the point, by the way, of the Old Testament narratives where you say mighty salvation, whether it's the salvation of Noah, whether it's the salvation of the children of Israel, whether it's, it's the, all the other salvations with, under King David, and you can go on and on and on. They're, they're all magnificent. And it's all something that only God could do. And that's the point. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ has delivered us from sin and death and Satan. We are no longer enslaved by our selfishness. We are free to give our lives away in service to others because we got, Christ has conquered all our enemies. And this is why God has saved us. He's given us his grace so that we can live for his glory. Well, the last thing that Zechariah does, he blesses his son. Remember I said two parts of the blessing. He blesses God, then he blesses his son. And the order is significant. In his fatherly pride, Zechariah recognized the subordinate position of his son. John was the last and the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. But what has made him great was his relationship to Jesus. He was first in birth order, John was, but second in significance. You find that a lot in Scripture too, don't you? Now let's read these verses together, verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We all sit in the shadow of death. The picture here is of a wilderness People, maybe at night, and the, the raging wilderness. And John was a forerunner, the prophet who prepared the way. And he did this by preaching a message of salvation. So here's a question. Basic question. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? The salvation that Zechariah promised was not delivered from uh, was not deliverance from earthly enemies. That's not the enemies he's talking about. Fundamentally, salvation is the forgiveness of sin. And by and large, the people of John's day were looking for the wrong kind of salvation. And they're no different than the people today. The people of John's day were thinking primarily in political terms. Has anything changed? I can promise you that Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, uh, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush the first or whatever you want to call him, and even Ronald Reagan, none of them are our saviors. Politics does not save us. 
And yet every election period, we act like we're going to elect our Savior. They wanted a better economy. They wanted more personal freedom, freedom from the Romans. But this is not the kind of salvation that God has in mind. He has a greater salvation. And like Israel, you know this to be true, but we always think about it in terms of other people. Like Israel, we are usually wrong about what we really need, aren't we? We always look at our outward circumstances. God, will you save us from our bad work situation? We want God to save us from our financial setback, from our troubled marriage, or even from a bad health diagnosis. You know, of course God is able to handle those problems, and, and it's right to pray about them, by the way. You should pray about them, right? But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It does not help you to be delivered from earthly troubles if you spend eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. So the first thing God has to deal with in our lives is our sin. Eventually, and this is interesting, eventually salvation changes society. Did you know that? You, you get enough saved people in a society and it will change it. But that's not where it starts. There can be no social transformation without spiritual regeneration. And salvation begins when the Holy Spirit changes a sinner's heart. Now what we need more than anything else is to have a right relationship with God. And this can only come through the forgiveness of our sins. To be specific, let me get real specific here, um, a right relationship with God can only come through the cross where Jesus died for sinners. As, God, as Luke later wrote, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And all of this, forgiveness, all of this happens because of God's mercy. As a matter of fact, Zechariah called it tender mercy. That word tender, you know what it is? It's the word bowels. Bowels. It's your stomach. The idea is it's a deep, inward mercy. It's our feelings in our bowels. Forgiveness is the supreme expression of God's compassionate mercy for sinners. Now we know God has no bowels, right? He's spirit. And so this mercy means it comes from deep within because God is mercy. That's who he is. And God is grace. Nothing is more wonderful for a sinner than to receive mercy. And as Zechariah thought about how wonderful it was, he made a comparison. And I already described it a little bit. It's, look at the, 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 the way he describes it. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're in the shadow of death. And they're exposed to the terrors of night. They're away from home, away from the safety of home. And this was Israel's situation during the dark days before Christ was born. And this is the situation that we were in before we were born again. And this is a situation that everyone is in who has never been born again. They are in a precarious, unsafe wilderness in the shadow of death at night when everything's trying to encroach upon them. All these metaphors are metaphors that describe the lost condition, isn't it? 
The people in darkness have seen a great light. And we know some of those verses. And so, um, nothing is as wonderful than to see a sinner receive mercy. All that night, they were praising God and glorifying God. And it's interesting, by the way, in, in his song, he says, he talks about the morning light, the sunrise. In earlier days, the people, I think even in the King James, they call it the day spring. It's the day spring. It's the sunrise. And that is what people are waiting for. People are waiting for the sunrise of their deliverance. And don't miss this. When I refer to politics, that's exactly what they're thinking. They wouldn't verbalize it that way. I'm going to be delivered from my troubles if we elect that person. They think that about their job. My troubles will melt away if I can get this job. My troubles will melt away if, if God would fix my spouse. Right? My troubles, and you can stick all, my health. If my health are different, all my troubles would melt away. And we're looking the wrong way. We're looking the wrong direction for the sunrise. The sunrise is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so Zechariah said that the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. After darkness, light. That's what it means to be saved. After darkness, light. Isn't that true for you? After darkness, light. Salvation is like the first glimmer of dawn after the blackest night. And until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are still living in the darkness of unforgiven sin. But when we trust Him, as Zechariah did, His light comes into our lives. We are able to see our way, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And the dark night of your sin will be over. And the day spring of His light will arise in your heart. Dear believer, let me ask you something. Is the day spring of Jesus Christ, deliverance from your sin, arising in your heart this Christmas season? Is it God saved us from our sin? He saved us from death and hell. He saved us to glorify Him. He saved us and set us apart so that we live holy lives for Him. And all of these things cause our hearts to rise up in joy. Lord, I thank you for the, the truth of Scripture. It is, it is um, such a cause of joy to know about our salvation, how the, the God of the universe entered our situation. He humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, and became our Savior, died a horrible death, as an innocent man, so that we might re be redeemed. He is our day spring. But Lord, in the meantime, I pray that we will see that this awful death was done, uh, was, was given because you hate sin. And I pray that we will, first of all, live holy lives separating from our sin. But we will live holy lives separating unto you, setting ourselves apart for your service in all areas of our life. And I pray, Lord, I know, I know, I know there are people here who their day yesterday was not all that it cracked up to be. 
because of family issues or, or quarantines or whatever else. And there's a tendency, if we're not careful, to allow ourselves to get melancholy. And I pray that your spirit will minister in our hearts and give us the joy of our salvation. And then finally, Lord, I know that there are people here who come here and they don't know you. And they don't have the joy of their salvation. And they're walking in spiritual darkness. I pray that you will give light to their eyes. You give life to their hearts so that they can turn to you and be gloriously saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.